Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is evening here on Monday, October the 2nd, into October somehow. Uh, time, it continues to fly by, but... Um, it's my half birthday today. Today is your half <laughs> birthday. Wow. It, I mean, 30, yeah, I'm, 35 I'm at your house. You didn't get me half a cake, but it's totally fine. You get to have half of my wedding cake. It's frozen downstairs waiting for... Uh, Waiting for our anniversary, which, which is, is also coming up. Also coming up. I'm very excited about that. How you been? Uh, I've new? been better than you. If you are watching us, if you follow us on Instagram, you'll see some video and you'll see Ricky's all bandaged up today. Do you want to update me and the people on your condition? <laughs> well, my condition is is vastly improved. I'm uh, realizing that. Just a couple of old man aches after uh, getting tossed out of a golf cart earlier uh, this weekend. Ricky for... is now getting hurt when he's golfing, so we've officially reached like old middle age status. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very sad to have given up other sports in because with, you didn't want to get hurt. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But I think a bruised ego is um, about. The it was scary of the for a minute there. I, w- we, I w- were, we were I all was a little, bit yes. yes. <laughs> Mainly just because the body parts are not as uh, as flexible as they once were. Nor nor would they. Nor do I think they would heal as like quickly they if did. they were actually uh, hurt. But good news, I think we're okay. We're okay. Love that. We're okay. So normally this is the part where I ask you, "What are we talking about today?" But I actually invited you here to tell you what we're talking about today. <laughs> I really, so I really have no idea. This is the first time, and this is episode 104, that Ricky has been like, I have an idea for an episode. You don't need to prepare anything, which is really like almost the antithesis of what normally happens. So I am as in the dark as all of the listeners out there. Yeah, and so to, I guess to give you a little bit more context around why I actually didn't want you to prepare is I'm... I. I think this discussion is something that we've like definitely talked about over the course of our hundred plus podcasts, um, but maybe not as explicitly as I wanted to talk about it today. And part of the reason why I didn't want you to prepare is I think like kind of the emotional response or like the like the feelings it evokes is what I wanted to get into. So, um, I'll, I'm so intrigued. Yeah, I know. It, it sounds like it's going to be yeah. deeper than it yeah. is, and maybe, and maybe it won't be that deep. But basically, over the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to a few podcasts that have started to talk explicitly about capitalism. So, not necessarily in the terms of just like like broader neoliberalism, but specifically the yeah, specifically capitalism. And I thought, you know, we we touched a little bit on the UAW strike. We talked about um, sort of, yeah, what's the what's going on with SAG-AFTRA. Um, 
But I started to listen to a few podcasts that were trying to draw a lot of these through lines between, uh, you know, Donald Trump, the Tea Party movement, the bank bailouts in 2008, and really just like going back in time to talk explicitly about capitalism in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. And I think part of the premise of a couple of these, and so one is um, Today Explained by Noel King does that. I don't know. I mean, these are obviously mostly left-leaning podcasts that I don't no know that you would <laughs> that you would frequent. But I, I thought they did a good job at least posing the question of like, what is it that people think about when they think of capitalism, and how does that relate to how they make political choices, how they perceive either things as good or bad, um, and I. Th- yeah, I think I think it's interesting. So what I want to do in this in this one hour or so that we are allotting ourselves, because um, I think obviously we could talk about this for ad nauseum, um, <laughs> as we uh, are are often able to do. That I want to talk, yeah, in parts about like how you think about capitalism, but then also throw a few either some quotes at you or just like different things. Um, that were coming up in these podcasts that, you know, kind of evoke certain responses. And I'm curious as to what you think about them and or, you know, at the end of this podcast, if you'll have any different sort of opinions about capitalism going forward. Sounds fair. I'm excited to get into it. All right. Well, before we do that, I actually, before we even get to the sponsorship, there are three pieces of news that I at least wanted to touch on because I knew we weren't going to do a newsy segment. So I'll start from, I'll start with, this, so three of them. First one, Jimmy Carter turned 99 this week. Uh, incredible. Continues to extend his record as the longest living president post the presidency uh, and continues to live we talked back in October with Dan Ray when we had on because he had entered hospice back in back in March, I think, and we we had kind of tentatively you and I had talked about maybe doing an episode on him if and when he died. But he continues to live uh, not only a long life but an incredible life where he's still consuming the news and following the Atlanta Braves, who've given him a lot of joy over these last few years. And he celebrated this year with a big cake and uh, attended a naturalization citizen, uh, naturalization, uh, like, uh, ceremony for 99 new U.S. citizens, which I thought was like a really cool little thing. So just a huge, I mean, we'll talk more about him at some point down the line, but hopefully not for a while as he continues to live a wonderful life. Second piece of news. The United States government averted a shutdown at the last minute, which perhaps you were maybe maybe more optimistic about than I was. But literally over the weekend, at I would say like literally like a last minute shutdown averted to extend the government for 45 more days, kicks the can down the road a little bit to right before Thanksgiving. But on the good side, we have we're not the government is not shut down as of today, so that's something I would still expect all eyes now turn to Matt Gates and the Freedom Caucus and see if they pull out the motion to vacate that they've been hanging over McCarthy's head. Like, what's that sword? Like, there's the Sisyphus sword or the... No. Not, it's definitely not Sisyphus because he's, he's the one pushing the rock yeah. up the hill. But the sword of Dimocles. Dimocles. That's what I'm going to uh, go with. Um, sounds good. Uh, people can look up that reference and fact check me. But I think that's the right... 
uh, one. And we'll see. So all eyes will turn to him to see if that happens in the next week or so. And finally, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away. And we talked, we've talked about her recently because as one of the many U.S. officials that we pointed to as someone that was getting old and probably definitely should not have been continuing to serve. She, she was 90 years old. And I think one of the unfortunate things is that like, that's how I remember her is like these last few years of someone that's not in her prime anymore. So I wanted to go and, and spend a little time this weekend reflect or reading more about her rise to become a senator. She was the longest serving woman ever to serve in the U.S. Senate. She rose... You might know this, but I didn't. She became she was the first female mayor of San Francisco, but became the mayor after the murders of Harvey Milk and George Moscone. And so kind of rose up through this tragedy, ran for uh, was re- was elected as mayor on her own. She ran for governor and didn't get it, but then ran for Senate and has been the senator from California for 30 years. And she was praised all across the aisle for uh, both aisles for her integrity and her courage and her in her centrism, her willing to work with other people to speak truth to power at, at times. The people pointed a lot to her confronting the CIA about their interrogation techniques uh, under the Bush administration in the Iraq war at Guantanamo Bay and how she not she was a staunch supporter of the Intelligence Committee, but also of the community, but was also not afraid to take them on. And she was the one that had kind of commissioned this report about all of these uh, torture techniques that the United States was doing. She was also one of the leaders in the 94 assault weapons ban. And so she's a trailblazer for women and also an incredibly accomplished person just generally. And you know, anytime a senator dies, there's only a hundred of them. It's it's worth remarking on, I think. But she was not an ordinary senator. Yeah, I I think those are great. Um, at, need to be called out, and and uh, I think appreciate you doing so. When I think about Diane Feinstein, like a lot of her accomplishments were sort of pre our era, but of yes. course, like she yeah. has been in the Senate for two two decades um, since, but. Yeah, and, and and we talked about this a lot in terms of the idea about term limits and, and age limits as well. But I think at this point, it is worth sort of remembering some of the massive achievements that she had while she was in there. Um, and first woman senator from, from California as well, right? Yeah. Um, so it, a remarkable political career, definitely. One that I don't know really all that much about. Yeah, beyond some of the highlights that you that you covered. Right. And so I I think it's always worth going back and trying to get a fuller context when any of these influential figures of our times pass away. Um, But Ricky, it is also now that the news, my news updates are in the background. It's also as we enter October spooky season. I personally am not a big like I like Halloween as much as like a regular person does. But I think there are people in my life and probably in yours, too, that are like huge spooky season. Like, oh, my goodness, October 1st, everything comes out. Um, If you guys, if people are on Insta or social media in general, you're probably already seeing this. but so that's that's what my question for you is coming. But the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out online or visit them at uh, check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, what do you call a scared piece of wood? 
I thought we were we're done with the the, the <laughs> pop quiz trivia. I'm out. I got nothing. Petrified. Ooh. Petrified wood in honor of spooky season. Timely as always, I think. Yeah. Indeed. I try to be. All right, let's get into uh, wherever you're gonna, Let's get into the journey on which you're about to lead me. I think the only place to start this kind of discussion is to just start with a, a very simple and yet not so simple <laughs> question as to what does capitalism mean to you? And I think maybe try and think about or answer this in both like a how would you describe capitalism and then what are the things that you think of when you think about capitalism? I think of the greatest economic system that the world has ever known. I think of opportunity. How, how would I describe it? I would describe it as a system that largely allows individuals to prosper based on their own merits. Okay. And I, and I, think, I think that is sort of like the generally accepted idea that capitalism evokes, right? Like it's pull your pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, you know, the, the world is your oyster and you make of it what you will sort of thing. I think the more textbook definition is, is private ownership of the means of production, right? That individuals rather than say governments own the things that create the things. Well said. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, when, when I guess when you think about it in those terms, does it mean anything different? No, I think that's those are just literally like the means to the ends of individuals controlling their own destiny in a way that they weren't under most previous economic or political systems. Okay, so in in this regard, I guess one question that was asked to um to actually sort of pose in different ways to to various um kind of experts on economics or political economy or sociology um were sort of asked like if you were to describe the or if you were to label the opposite of capitalism what would you what would you say well to go back to your definition and just flip it on its head, it would be that the government owns the means of production, right? They're not owned by private individuals. They're owned by the state. Right. So you would kind of think of it as, I mean, you would just call it communism. Sure. The, I guess one of the questions that was asked was, does capitalism as we understand it today exist without, I mean, because in some ways, yeah, that makes sense. But really, it's just a different method of like ownership. Like what if nobody owns it? What if, you know, you know, like you don't really participate in a society. There are many other ways of being other than in a capitalist or communist society. But I think it is important to note that most people think about these two things as kind of diametrically opposed. Um, and then this sort of additional question was posed that like, does capitalism, especially the one that we know it in the sort of 21st century, exist without the existence of communism? I, I, I feel like I want more context on that question. Yeah. yeah. So, 
So I guess like the way that we have developed, because we've sort of made capitalism mean that to like every extent possible, or at least in the way that we think about it politically, government ownership is somehow like anti-capitalist. Does that sort of notion of capitalism really come to fruition without like a juxtaposition against sort of the more Soviet Lenin, Stalin style of authoritarian communism? No, in the sense that you're right, like contextually wise, the way they've been set up over the last 75 years, they're inexplicably like intertwined as like they're, as you said, diametrically opposed. But I think, yes, in the sense of like traditional capitalism, like if you think back like where where do these ideas start generating from is you know, Adam Smith and like the wealth of nations or John Stuart Mill like on liberty right these are 17th 18th 19th century thinkers and writers and uh, who are who are talking about these ideas of like the free market system and those come up prior to and then contemporaneous with Marxism but like Marxism doesn't catch on really anywhere until the 20th century so capitalism and the free market has existed at that point at least for a hundred plus years yeah so i so i think really that's where i want to go with this right so starting from adam smith the wealth of nations this idea that we have a a free market and that is going if everybody sort of works towards their best interest that will create the best interest for all of us collectively um, we'll start to have, you know, people will exploit their absolute advantages and they'll do the things that they do best. And every, if everyone does the things that they do best, we'll sort of be able to trade and create the most amount of um, sort of that like surplus mm-hmm. uh, profit sort of for the for for everybody collectively. Now, each individual may have a different share of that. And we think that that's OK based on the, the capitalist system. I think. <clears throat> One of the things that I was intrigued by in this in this sort of the position of this question was that like, well, even in America, like the most arch kind of capitalist society, we have Social Security, we have Medicare, we have national roads and highways, we have train systems, we have subways, we have a lot of things that Obviously, you know, in a more communist world, they would be more of those things. But we do have them. Yep. Um, so these are like social things. And obviously, at, at in various stages of our history, we have attacked them from different directions, either as being like too socialist or not. But I guess maybe before we dive into some specific examples... Like, do you think naturally, had, were it not for this kind of fear that we invoke from how, like, the Soviet era or the Soviet Union was portrayed, that we would naturally not think about more of these sort of social constructs as we developed the country? Or, yeah, I guess in in what, to what degree does 
us having the Soviet Union to point to as like, we don't want to be them? Does that actually direct our policies in a way that that maybe people might not have intended without that like boogeyman on the other side of the Atlantic? Well, it's now been an accusation in a very effective political accusation to label someone a communist for 75 plus years. Now, I, I saw a headline, this woman, Heather Cox Richardson, she wrote this book recently, it just came out uh, like last week, I think, about called Democracy Awakening. I want to read it at some point. Would love to speak with her too at some point. But she, or the headline that she wrote is like, like how socialists became like a slur, uh, like how, how that became, as opposed to just like describing someone. Uh, and so, yes, I think in that sense, it's anytime you're giving the government more power, collectivizing anything, right? You just say socialist and people have this instant negative reaction. Although I will say that in the last 20 years, that's less so, particularly amongst people of our age and people that don't, that's why, because we didn't grow up necessarily with like this, the Soviet Union being the book, Cuba being the boogeyman in this, in the same way. And the communist countries today, we've talked about China, but that's not in the same way that we are maybe not a, a 100% capitalist system, they are far from a 100% communist system. So I, I think that's that kind of fear has diminished in recent years, much to the chagrin of like true capitalists. But I guess to kind of circle back to your original question, when you're talking about things like Social Security and, and Medicaid and Medicare, these are still relatively young programs, right? These are programs that were almost exclusively either brought up in the New Deal under FDR or in Great Society under Lyndon Johnson. And I think there's still tremendous disagreement about like the effectiveness of those programs. Like you, I mean, you watched the Republican debate the other day. I don't know if you were watching until the end, but and I can't watch that from start to finish. You did watch a lot of it. Though. I did yeah, watch yeah, a lot. You, you were you were texting me left to right about all these things that were happening. Uh, don't be so dismissive. You're like, you're, you're like a glutton for punishment. Yeah, you I love am. doing I that. Can't help it. Uh, but at, at one point, they're talking to DeSantis about the the slavery reference in his textbook about how slaves like learn valuable skills. And Tim Scott says he's wrong to do that. But you know what was actually worse was the Great Society. And he says, like, Linda, that what Lyndon Johnson did did with welfare hurt the black family more than anything kind of that really happened since slavery. Uh, so it's it's still an issue that I think, like, these programs that you point to as socialists, which they objectively are, I think a lot of true capitalists, and oftentimes those are, like, the modern-day libertarians, would be against those programs. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think sort of un unquestionably, right? Like the libertarian of today is that more or less the neoliberal, like you just, whatever, laissez-faire, yes. right? The, <laughs> yeah. um, as long as government stays out of it, the best things, things will, be better. will happen. <laughs> and that's... Um, what does that Reagan say? One of the five most the five scariest words in the English language is the government is here to help. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And I and I think that that is the, and and we sort of like went back to this. It was like the the idea that like free speech is good as long as what everyone's saying is like helps me. And I think that in in the same way that that Republicans specifically have used recently, like government is bad unless they're there to do <laughs> what I want to do, which is like permit me to drill oil wherever I want and like you know, whatever, put tariffs on countries that I don't like and stop immigration where I don't like, but otherwise government is bad and we should do everything to get rid of them. Right. Like it's, I, th I think that they're in, and I mean, you can argue in very many, in 
in much the same way that the American left does a lot of the same thing, right? Throughout the 60s and 70s, it's the government's, you know, is is this giant conspiracy theory against any kind of left uh, left wing type movement, and then all Although, of a sudden, to be fair, that's what was happening. Well, I, I mean, it, yeah, you could argue on the right that that's they generally believe that that's what's happening. Yes, right of, yeah, I mean, yeah. of course, right? Yeah. And I mean, the and then the problem is like, is government then a tool or not? But um, the I, I I think that that is I'm I'm not sure that we have. Um, the I, I'm not sure that there like is any place where you can really see that the this idea that like if we get out of the way, people will naturally create the things that they need to survive. So like, how do you think about like how or not people individually, but like as a society, by everybody sort of acting in their own self interest, will create the sort of this ideal world where everybody has kind of what they need and everybody is providing sort of the best of themselves because that is what generates them the most like profit. Well, I guess I would say that there's no ideal world for me. Like even in my wildest, pure free market dreams, I understand that there's going to be issues and that there still needs to be a government in which case like there's inevitably going to be state sponsored like state institutions which so it's it's never going to be a pure you know like a, a utopian capitalist free market system and and that's okay that's by design right? it's a social contract goes back to like all these enlightenment thinkers like that we have to give up some of our rights but in my opinion the goal is to give up as few of those rights as possible to allow people to have as much freedom as possible we've talked about that balance <laughs> through throughout this this podcast um but I guess I I have like a lot of faith in people, and I would say why did the United States? Why have we become the greatest country in the world? There's a million things you could point to, and certainly you wouldn't be wrong in, in pointing to slavery as one of those things. Fair, but I think overwhelmingly you would say that our our system has allowed people to prosper and our ideas like why throughout all of these revolutions that have occurred in technology over the last 200 years why does the united states seem to always be at the front do i think we're necessarily any smarter or harder working or better than any people from all over the world not necessarily i think we've just we've created the system that have allowed our really smart our really hardworking people to flourish and i mean that's why i would argue that so this is a great place for immigrants to come because it allows them to un unleash their talents. And for me, all of these other things are like their government. If you want to be charitable, you say that they're like safety nets for people. But of course, like with safety nets, some people are just going to want to stay in the safety net. There's there's no impetus from behind to. And again, I, I know you know this, but like I'm not saying that a lot of people that don't work many of them have really valid reasons for not working but there's no doubt that it's easier to to take government benefits and subsidies than not if they're being offered to you if those things didn't exist it would force people to to do more just because to, to survive and a lot of people say that's not good why why should people do all in all of these different situations that have mental health issues substance use issues that are veterans and trauma and they're single mothers like why should we be putting them in these positions that they have to work but the, the contrast, like, they would be providing more to society than they do now taking from society. Yeah, so I, I think that there's, like, the the two ends of the of 
capitalism. One, which is like, if we don't have a ceiling, then people can consistently reach like new heights. And you don't see that, um, or like you might not see that otherwise. I think I've actually thought about this a lot and I really bought into this argument for a long time, but even just discussing this today, right? Like the idea of capitalism is maybe 300-ish years old, uh, three to 400 years old. Well, not the idea, but like really the practice of it. And I mean, we've had Galileo, Da Vinci. We've had plenty of inventors. And uh, I mean, the, <laughs> the span of human technological progress goes back you know, millennia, basically, bef- before capitalism was there to provide this like, well, if you, you know, if you can't be a billionaire, why, why make anything? Um, I think that there is, I think there's a, while intuitively that makes a lot of sense, I don't know necessarily that, that that's true. With the, the, on, on the flip side, I, I, I think again, this, it's like an argument that really makes a lot of sense when you think about it, that in order to, sort of escape your circumstances like not having the safety net requires everybody to sort of push themselves in a way that uh, that having a safety net just intrinsically doesn't that said could we also not say that we're that a floor of basic health care for everybody and sort of this idea that, you know, at some point in your life you can retire if you've worked for whatever and, and your basic needs be met. Now, obviously, the, sort of the, the discussion is what what are what constitutes basic needs and does that evolve over time? But can you not create a society where the floor is just high enough that we all agree that, like, everyone deserves this much and then what you can create beyond that is for you. And can that not be this like idea of like a social democracy or something where, and I think this is how the term sort of evolves, like right over the 21st century, you have this notion that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Um, and I, obviously you have politicians like Bernie Sanders who really try and hone in on this message, but there's obviously the pushback from the not only the generation that sort of lived through communism and, and sort of the specter of communism as this alternative to what we have here in the U.S., but also people, in, I mean, in some ways like yourself, who are... who. Idolize is probably a strong word, but really think about the notion of this free market capitalism as the way that we can really just like get ourselves to sort of the best state possible. And I think, and I think that that is, I I think in some ways it's hard to dispute. Like it's hard to say that without, like without, that if we were able to create that like perfect free market where everyone had perfect information and everyone could enter and exit markets at will. And like, you didn't have these transaction costs. You didn't have a, like a a lot of the sort of the shackles on the free market that we have today that, that really we could achieve something. Um, and I, and I think that that's, I guess maybe this takes me to like my second point, but before we move on, perhaps it's time 
to take a little pause. I'll get, <laughs> maybe grab a sip of water, and then uh, and then we'll we'll come back. So obviously, just diving right in and chomping into some some of these meaty discussions, but sort sort of left off like thinking about how right there there is a bit of a shift right before you get this you get the label of he's a socialist he's a communist and that's it there's no more discussion to all of a sudden 2012 13 you have on one side the tea party and on the other side you have occupy wall street um the way that i or the the way that at least some of the discussion around capitalism was related to these two movements, and then I want to sort of go from there to more of like a Trump or any Sanders, was that on the one hand you have <clears throat> the Tea Party that's sort of saying that the problem with our economic system is the government, and then you have on the other side the... Occupy Wall Street was just saying the problem is not the government. The problem is the system. Uh, when you think about some of the things that happened, the fallout from the 2008 recession, right? We bailed out the banks, but we also bailed out a lot of individual homeowners from bad mortgages. And I know things like that, you know, education debt relief are, are things that, that you have a lot of qualms with. How did you sort of interpret the situation? And it wasn't, I mean, I think this is also interesting because I don't know that I thought that deeply about it in 2010 in the same way yeah, sure. that I would now. Well, of course, that's just us being far younger and less aware of the world than we are now, and that's fine. I think, so it's, it's hard to take me back 14 years ago and say how I was feeling about it then we were in college at the time and so like the job market was kind of looming out there but at the same time it wasn't necessarily affecting us like right there because we were in school I think that I hated the bailouts I, I it's it's probably my least favorite thing. <laughs> this, this is a hot take for you it's probably my least favorite thing that George Bush did uh and I, I think that the bank bailouts, the bank bailouts, yes, and and I, I understand why. And it was the same thing in COVID. I in the 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 bank bailouts recently that we've talked about. I I just I, I hate this idea of too big to fail and to allow these these companies and who have just taken advantage of individual Americans to then escape by. And of course the counter argument is well, more individual Americans will get hurt, but like that's such a, a messed up incentive system for these companies. It drives me crazy. And this is where I think tie in, like this is what people on the left are arguing the same thing, but what they're saying is that we need to have more government oversight on, on things like that. And I think it's, it's in, like you, you do need some, right? I think that's, that has to be one of your takeaways from the, this, the, real estate bubble of, of what happened and even even more recently with some of the speculation around cryptocurrency or, or whatever in, in recent years where an absolute like dearth of government regulation can lead to some bad actors really taking advantage of people. I think what what's hard is that most of these governments understandably so and I think as 
as people who are relatively centrist would say, like when you're getting yelled at from both sides, you're probably doing something right. But like the Obama government and or the Obama administration, the Bush and Obama administrations and the Trump and Biden administrations dealing with two different crises, but both kind of reacted similarly of, of saying that like, yeah, maybe we need more government oversight, but we're also going to bail out some of these banks, you know, and, uh, and I, I understand that, but then it just seems like you're, you're not, you're, as I've said before, you're just kind of kicking that can down the road and just waiting for that next crisis to come. Yeah. So, th- I mean, that that is really, I think, the sort of the, the crux of the issue or in the the challenge that people have. I, I want to say from the left, but I actually think this is really where kind of the two ends of the political <laughs> spectrum like are coming back around is that you have this idea that it's socialism for the rich and cap and sort of like this like brutal dog eat dog you know the most survival of the fittest capitalism for the poor in that because our democracy is so a centered around i mean you have that like the citizens united type corporations can basically give any amounts of money to the political parties and to political candidates that they want in order to receive the outcomes that they want, or at least to lobby for them. But you also have this notion that we don't have a pension system really anymore in the United States. Mm -hmm. What does everybody have? They have the 401k. What is the 401k? It's basically just a giant mutual fund on the American stock market. So the idea that oh, okay, well, you know, this big bank fails and we take a little hit in the stock market, it's like kind of fine, except for, well, every, you know, 90% of people's retirement money is stuck in that stock market. So now we've made this kind of deal with the devil that we can't undo in the way that we run our system. Um, And I think that that is predicated on this idea that we can just sort of like, spend and grow our way out of any problem and we can just deal with any sort of short-term blip by saying okay well we'll cover these banks and then the new growth will provide the spending the tax base or whatever and that'll pay pay it back and it's almost the same like yeah i i made a bad bet and I just need to take out another loan yeah. to make another bet yeah. so I can pay back the first bet. Right. No, but it's, this is where you're saying the two sides of the spectrum meet. Because what you hear on both far sides of the spectrum is that we need systemic change. Right. Both, both sides are saying are using like that phrase. They just mean very different types of systemic change. Yeah, yeah exactly. And But I think the, the challenge for the conservative side of the spectrum is that their version of free market capitalism is not entirely free market. And so like when you get into the notion of like immigration, for example, right? If, if, you know, you have this utopian free market society, well, what happens when late, when wages rise in, in country A and wages are low in country B? Well, two things can happen. A, you either move all the jobs to country B or you allow country B to send some of their workers here because that's, you know, labor wants to go where there are high wages and capital wants to go where there are low wages. And so you allow this movement of people and things and it balances out and right. And you solve whatever immigration problem, but that's not 
that's not the ideal from the right, in fact. And, and really, it's not from the left either. If you think about the way Bernie Sanders was talking a lot about, well, we can't, you know, our, the populist thing is still very nationalist. And so it yes. doesn't, it doesn't yes. work in the way that you would want it to work. I, that's not a problem for me. It's a, it's a problem, I think, for the new right. I think that, and I don't know how they're going to square that. I don't think right now that anyone's really attempting to. It just you just play on people's anger and fear and, and stoke that. But yes, I I think traditional conservatives like the free market conservatives. I mean, that's what we talked about back to the Republican debate. It's at the Reagan Library. Like Reagan was very much like pro immigration. He was he was pro free trade. Those are not winning ideas in in the new right in the populist right. And so, I, yes, I don't know how that movement tries to square all of those ideas. I, I think that's why you see the Republicans in such disarray, because you have the traditional the traditional neoliberal conservatives, whatever, and those are the people that are saying that we, we need these things in order for a free market to work, and other people are coming along and saying, well, it hasn't worked, essentially, for too many people. Yeah. I, uh, I, I will say, so just, I read this article fairly recently, and now you're just making me think of it, but it was saying how obviously the parties in the last eight years are, have just shifted. And it, it happens sometimes. It happened around the civil rights movement. It happened around slavery, that like Democrats, what was the Democratic Party, like Democratic like bastions down south, and all of a sudden they become re Republican. And it, it's it shifted several times over the course of the two-party history in the last 200 years. But people are right now are struggling to figure out now Republicans are the class of the white working class, where Democrats, that was the Democratic base for decades. But also the white college educated voters are now the, the party of Democrats, where like for, for, again, decades, you had Republicans were like kind of the rich pro-business, college educated, higher degrees, like those were the people. And so the article was trying to examine like why how how those parties both square their messages, right? Because on, on, when you have populist, uh, so for the, the kind of new right, the new Republican Party, when you have populist messaging around anti-free trade, anti-immigration, but they also are anti-socialist. So like, how do, you, how do you square all of those things? But then on, on the left, you have all of these people that are really the wealth, <laughs> some of the wealthiest individuals in the world, the best educated people in the world, and they're not exactly advocating for socialism over there, too, right? And, but they're also advocating for more immigration. But do they adv are they advocating for more globalism or less? You know, like there. But I think both parties are in a, a crisis of ideas right now of like who that really a crisis of identity who they are. Yeah, I I think I think that that is probably like really the astute observation that I actually a lot of what I was listening to was missing. It's like this is. I mean, we talk about the inflection points a lot, but this is really this idea that the old ways of thinking about things are gone. And you like, but unfortunately, we have politicians who try and cling to them in, in different forms. Um, but like that new way hasn't coalesced around like a mission. Like, what are we trying to yeah. do in right. like some kind of like unified right. sense? Which I think that's why so much of the last few elections have been, well, 
the the, the worst party, right? Like it's, it's the fear mongering because yeah. if you have if you have no ideas really for yourself to rally around, then you point to the other guy. And like Biden says, and I said I've liked this quote before: "Is don't compare compare me to the Almighty, compare me to the alternative." What like. So it's a very nice phrase, whoever came up with that. But what is he really saying? Is like, hey, I might not be good, but that guy's worse. And like, that's essentially what we have right now it is two parties just being like, well, our plans might, you might not be happy with our plans, but you're going to be even less happy with their plans. Yeah, it's, act- it's actually really interesting because in ju- trying to like think about some of, you know, who were the big pro capitalist either thinkers or politicians of the last like century, century and a half person you've come across definitely is margaret thatcher and her slogan was like always like yeah capitalism has some problems or whatever has some problems but think of the like you know what's our alternative there is no alternative the winston churchill with democracy right Right. it's the best of all the worst systems right (laughs) and and i think that that is sort of an interesting premise because it almost again it like really relies on it's like it's either this or that it's not uh this and that and i think that is where people are struggling and you know one of the i think one of the big tenets of capitalism is that like you're you are free to be whoever you want to be to achieve whatever you you know through your own hard work can achieve and i think some of the things that on the left but really universally for people who don't feel like there is any hope for income mobility, right? They're drowning in student debt. They can't save up enough money to own a house. They can't get out of their, like, whatever, their minimum wage job because they've already maxed out their credit cards. And so anything that, anytime they skip a week of work and they don't get paid, now all of a sudden they're looking at their cars getting repoed or whatever. The life that they've somehow cobbled together is falling apart. And in some ways like that's those are the shackles of capitalism right like the ability to create a life that you can't escape because of debt and now i mean i think i know what your response is going to be it's like well those are your choices you live with those outcomes but i think we would we know that in many ways you don't choose that always right like you're not the only person you know some people go to college and graduate with debt and some people don't by virtue of parents or scholarships or like whatever they were able to get at um very young ages and so this is like the i don't know this is where i struggle with like how do we talk about modifying capitalism to really optimize for the things that it's best at which is like driving innovation solving problems where there isn't an existing solution but not trashing the planet in the process like (laughs) allowing people time to to not work like capitalism really rewards work incessantly but is that like really what people want to do and is there a way to like create a balance where we can have people who are um contributing to society while working four days a week so one of the one of the things that i wanted to come back to was that when we were talking about the uaw and you read through their list of demands and one of them was like we want a four-day work week and we want to get paid for five and i i don't know if you said it on the podcast but you definitely said it either before or after or under your breath which was this is why no one likes unions (laughs) and i was thinking about that and i was like 
yeah, of course. When I first heard that, I was like, that's ridiculous. Like, you're never going to get that. But then I started to think about what they were trying to put it in juxtaposition to, right? Like GM CEO getting a $30 million bonus at the end of the year. And of course, there are tens of thousands of employees. You spread $30 million over tens of thousands, like no one's getting a real raise there. No, right? we're talking about cents for people. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. So that so that's not, but at the same time, if it's not outlandish for someone at the top to give themselves $30 million as an individual, is it that crazy for somebody else to say like, this is what I want for myself. I want a four day work week. And how do we, I think part of the problem is of course that we have this like notion that labor has to be in sort of opposition to the capital class. Like that's the almost the way the system is set up mm -hmm. so that we are, it's, and you hear it very much in the way that Sean Fain was like sort of describing the CEOs as if they're evil people. And I mean, personally, I don't think that they're evil people, but when you say it like, well, they won't give anybody raises, but they're taking $30 million for themselves. Like it's very easy to paint that picture, but how do we, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. I don't have necessarily a question f for you there, but I, I mean, I guess like is I don't know. What do you got? <laughs> Goodness gracious! Yeah. Uh, look, I, I, I guess I'll start with saying I think that this was a big failure of intellectuals on the conservative side, the free market, libertarian, traditional, like neoliberal side, uh, in the last few decades. Because as income inequality grew, there was naturally going to be anger. And so the there was, I think, a failure to articulate a vision for how we move forward under this system or why these things were happening to you, why your job manufacturing wasn't here anymore. And so when you with a, with a failure of to provide a vision and a, a solution or an, even an, ex, an explanation and a solution to go forward, what do you have? You have, as always, demagogues come along and capitalize on all of this anger, and it becomes anti-immigration, anti-minority, almost inevitably throughout human, like modern human history. That's what we see over and over again, the scapegoating of these other groups saying, well, it's easy to say it's their fault. But I think if, if we're believers in the system, then we, we have to be able to articulate how does capitalism actually get us out of, of, of these issues, right? And... Uh, for me, slapping tariffs and closing the border do the opposite of that. But how do we explain that to people that make sense to them? How do we make it seem like in their own lives, through no fault of their own, things have gone away? But that doesn't mean that we have to blame this group of people or even blame the system. Like it's just that's unfortunately kind of what happens. And then how do we, as a, a government, say that we can provide you other opportunities to get ahead? So that's that's one thing. Uh, I do think when you're saying that this all or nothing uh, and we like this fetishization of work, I like very much fall into that. I work, work, work all the time. And I like to, and I think a lot of Americans actually really do like to do that because we are proud of how hard we work. And whether you are a, a, an assembly line worker at GM or the CEO of GM, I bet you take that same pride in your work of showing up every day and creating value. And I think that's why there's just inherent value in work. But that's very different than a lot of like European cultures, for example, who much more value like 
leisure and relaxation when they want more more vacation and, and shorter work days. And I don't want to be like those countries, but I also don't think that we should be ignoring those countries. When it comes off like quality of life surveys, what inevitably at the top you have the Scandinavian countries, and they are far smaller than us. They are far more heterogeneous than us. Uh, uh, homogeneous than us uh and so like they are very different from the united states so uh, we can't just like map their policies under our policies but as always we talked about we should be looking everywhere for good ideas of how to make the system more balanced and easier for more people to have more success i mean i i I think that that is yeah that should obviously be a part of of how we think about crafting policies to really steal the the best from places yeah. and be yes. introspective and figure out the things that are not working here and fix them. I think the the problem and 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 this is as a sort of a centrist someone who is not really in favor of these like massive upheavals. This is where I struggle because at some point I think we do get trapped in the this is the way that we have it now. And there's so much fear about really tinkering with what we have now that what we do instead is put like a, like you, I mean, the band-aids over bullet holes is really a lot of what, I mean, you talk about it with immigration, but you could easily say the same thing with social security or Medicare or like our freaking debt ceiling, right? Like every, every two months we do the same thing. And this unwillingness to say that we might have to like suffer is probably not the right word, but we might have to struggle a little bit to like reinvent some of the ways that we're doing things um, is, is a challenge for not only our system, but really for any system that's that, that wants to improve upon itself. Um, I think capitalism has so many benefits but we're still not ready to reckon with the things that it does not do well, which is it does not when there when the profit incentive is all of a sudden sort of perverted, like in the medical field or in when it comes to like dealing with natural resources, like how do we create better systems to account for that? And, and there are certainly market based systems that you can look at. Um, that we have struggled to get traction uh, either on the left or the right for for some of those. But these are things that we're really going to have to figure out if we want to keep, if we if we sort of want to maintain our our status right yeah. at the top. Yeah. And I think that that is really sort of like our our greatest challenge is like getting beyond the fact that we did grow at the pace that we did in the right, post-World War II in large part because of how we structured our economy. But it may not be the same way that we grow in the 21st century, but we have to like think about exactly what you said, like what works here, what doesn't work here, and how do we, and how do we fix it without constantly... I, I think that was this is oddly enough to come back to it. Like the most interesting part about this, this kind of Trump Sanders, the Occupy Tea Party movement is that they like, in some ways we're thinking about the same 
outcome with very different means, but there was at least a mutual understanding. Like a lot of people were like, well, if I can't vote for Trump, I'm going to vote for Sanders or vice versa. And there's a lot of other things embedded in that, that, that I'm not trying to talk about, but in many ways, like how we view the economy and how we view the economic system and how it treats us as individuals, but us as like a society, I think it was very much embedded in there. Like, how do we, the system is not working, but what is the solution? That was a really good podcast hosting. Well done to bring <laughs> that back full say, full circle on that. I, I didn't expect you to get there. Well done. Yeah. Well, that was definitely one for me. I appreciate uh, you, in, you indulging me and coming in with, uh, <laughs> with no prep. You did marvelously. As yeah, we'll expected. see. We'll see what people think about that. But it's it's funny talking about visions. We're constantly going back to our vision for this show, and we had said from the beginning one of the things that we wanted to do was not just be a news podcast. And sometimes I really like being a news podcast, even at the beginning of this episode or when we do the six and sixties. But is also to take some time and give us some space to work through some of these bigger issues and have these conversations that we wouldn't necessarily have the chance to to talk about or even have the the space to think about so I, I appreciate you bringing that back try we try to mix it up a little bit for people out there i kind of mix it up i i wanted to get high level because i realized even when we were talking about some of the republican candidates that like we spend so much time on the individuals that we're trying to elect and rightly so like the, their character and what they believe and what they stand for is so important yeah but there is kind of this broader notion of like where are we trying to move the whole thing yeah and without taking a step back and and thinking about well where do i want the whole thing yeah. to go it's hard um uh, it's hard to know yeah who who to support what movements to put to to back and um I don't know that I came that I really came up with any answers, but um, no, but that's not really expected. Yeah. I don't think people expect us to solve <laughs> these issues. But I, I, yeah, I will say, and that's where, in our ideal world, that's what the two party system does. It puts forth two competing visions for with two competing characters and puts that out on the debate stage for everyone and says, pick which do you think is better, which more represents you. And I don't think it ever comes out exactly like that. I will say, like. The Obama-Romney 2012 election felt a little bit like that, of people that just had different visions for the country and about how we should be going about things, both with our economics and our foreign policy. And that, this typical realization, that just hasn't happened in the last two, and I don't anticipate it happening in the third. But maybe that's because exactly we're in this period of seismic shifting and people don't have visions to, to throw out there. So there are not competing visions, really. It's competing, like... Uh, visions of darkness <laughs> yeah, essentially yeah. you know uh, yeah yeah i mean in at least there was like a little bit of a agreeing about the problems and differing on the solutions which is i think where we started this podcast that was what yeah, we wanted yeah. to to get out of it and so anyways well, i hope you all enjoyed till next time buddy yeah as always let us know if you have any thoughts but uh we'll, we'll talk to you soon yeah see ya We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day 
No agenda, not yet. Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's heads. Folks of different minds, because even though it did not share, Pains we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments. And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause the old mainstream may not sell It's full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's trying to find a better way to disagree Some days you win, some days will leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for. The hope I used to find in a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share opinions We share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz